Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick, and welcome back to Intervals. Today we're very pleased to welcome Professor Kenneth Jenkin of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Kenneth is a specialist in African American history whose exploration here in this talk of the left-wing intellectuals, Cedric Belfrage and Langston Hughes, draws us into a series of global travels that shaped their political activation in the early 20th century. For Belfrage, these travels overturned the romanticized view of British Empire that had infused his upper-class London boyhood, while for Hughes, they provided an extended encounter with the vast world of possibility that lay beyond American apartheid and its attendant cruelties and humiliations. Is it some kind of accident that critiques of capitalism and critiques of racism nourished one another in these two life journeys? Kenneth Jenkins here to help us think all of that through. In November of 1904, in a hygienic and cozy spot in his family's 20-room West End London mansion, Cedric Belfridge was delivered into the world and his place in Britain's gentleman class. His fortune, as he early recognized, was an accident of birth. The family's comfortable circumstances were facilitated by his father's income as a physician, inherited wealth, and investment in the stock market. Among the essential lessons he, a gentleman in training, had to learn was how to ignore and evade inconvenient truths that came generally under the headings of inequality and repression throughout the empire. A partial list of such truths would surely have included the certainty that women were the delicate sex and ought not to have the vote, that the poverty and its assorted ills that plagued his country's working masses was the natural order of things, and should a gentleman take note of it, he would be discomfited and so should learn to look the other way, that his majesty's darker subjects in Asia and Africa could manage quite well on half of what a gentleman's family pet consumed, and that maladies of one's digestive system were to be endured silently, while that same body's erotic and sexual impulses were to be deeply submerged and never discussed. In these and other matters, young Belfridge was tutored by boarding school headmasters who stressed perpetual Anglo superiority and the battle against the sin of concupiscence. But demands for self-control in all realms and development of a willful blindness could only achieve so much obliviousness to the ever-sinking position of the legions of less fortunate subjects at home and abroad. A new method of distraction appeared during Belfridge's childhood and adolescence, backed not by headmasters, whose legendary strictness often bordered on the sadistic, but by real estate speculators, hucksters, and prophets of a wide-open American West. The Hollywood movies. Belfridge became infatuated with the screen actress Marion Davies when he first saw her on the screen. She took his and his countrymen's minds off the post-World War I international and domestic tumult and presented a version of sex that both scandalized his repressed upbringing and promoted a one-dimensional erotic life untethered from meaningful human interaction. It was the perfect narcotic, and he wanted to be not only a consumer of it, but a producer of it. At the University of Cambridge, Belfridge fell in with a circle of like-minded cinephiles, including the future novelist and screenwriter Christopher Isherwood. 
Like others in this circle with family means, Belfridge owned and edited a, peri- a film periodical. The periodicals were like today's unpaid internships that many college students now work. Students then hoped that they and their work would be noticed, especially by British film industry executives, and then hired. The wages were miserly, but the mere promise of a foot in the door was enough to convince the students to endure straitened circumstances. Belfridge and many of his Cambridge circle recognized, too, the genius of a young Alfred Hitchcock, and joined him for a short time in Berlin, which they all thought of as the capital of European filmmaking. After a university education at Cambridge and a decline in family fortunes owing to the post-war slump in stocks, Belfridge faced uncertain chances. Many of his acquaintances were downwardly mobile, and struggled even to find jobs as salesmen at high-end department stores or as bank tellers. For Belfridge, whose family money was older, the possibility of making a life in traditional gentleman-class careers in banking, home affairs, or imperial service both depressed and bored him. In 1926, immediately after the collapse of the British general strike, he sailed to New York and then traveled overland to California to become a writer of gossip for the burgeoning industry of Hollywood trade magazines. For five years, he pounded out articles on his typewriter all about the Hollywood studios established in Rising Stars, manufacturing fantasy for American and British publics eager to escape their country's sharpening social contradictions. By the time of the 1929 stock market crash, he had come to understand that his industry, like the movie industry it covered, was a purveyor in escapology, a state of mind and habit of thinking that pacified the consumer and encouraged superficial and transient human interactions. While he was doing well financially, even as the capitalist world neared collapse in the Great Depression, his personal life was a mess as his marriage to a silent screen actress dissolved. Applying the teachings of escapology to his own affairs, he returned to London in 1931 as a press agent for Samuel Goldwyn, and then took a job as film reporter for the Daily Express and later the BBC. He became romantically involved with fellow journalist Molly Castle, but the seriousness of their feelings for each other rattled him when he had had enough of both peddling and engaging in empty and emotionless relationships that the film industry presented as a reality worth striving for. He tried one last time to stave off personal commitment. He proposed to his newspaper bosses that he travel the world and write articles about his sojourn. Undertaken in 1934, the year-long trip became the basis of Away From It All, an escapologist notebook which arraigned British colonialism and all forms of imperialism from the standpoint of someone who realized he was a sahib, an Englishman in the colonies. Not quite three years Cedric Belfridge's senior, Langston Hughes was born into an impoverished black aristocratic family in Missouri in 1902 and mostly raised by his grandmother in Kansas. His grandfather was a prominent abolitionist, as was his great-uncle, the prominent Reconstruction-era politician John Mercer Langston. When he lived with his mother, his father left the family. 
He led a peripatetic life, moving as his mother searched for work. He briefly attended Columbia University, but matriculated at and graduated from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. After graduation, he kicked around Washington, D.C., writing poetry and working for Carter Woodson at the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Having few of Belfridge's advantages, but desiring to see the world beyond the United States, Hughes became a merchant seaman, loaded and unloaded cargo in West Africa, separated from his employer when the ship docked in Europe on its return voyage to the United States, and scraped by living in Paris while practicing the craft of poetry. He later returned to New York and became the celebrated Harlem Renaissance poet, but could not make a living at it. As in Belfridge's case, a life crisis sent Hughes on the road. In 1930, following an emotionally wrenching falling out with his benefactor, which not coincidentally canceled his meal ticket, Hughes committed to a dream of becoming a self-supporting writer. With brief hiatuses at patrons' homes in California, Hughes spent much of the years 1931 to 1937 traveling in Cuba, Haiti, the United States South, the Soviet Union, Japan, China, and Spain, and gathering material for his poetry, writing for stage and screen, and reporting on world events such as the Spanish Civil War for the African-American press. This five-year journey was chronicled in I Wonder as I Wander, which charts his growth as a writer and a sympathetic observer of human and political change. Belfridge's itinerary included pre-Civil War Republican Spain, Egypt, Palestine, Iraq, India, Ceylon, Australia, New Zealand, Malaya, and Indonesia. Three ropes braid the narrative direction of Away From It All. First, he critiqued the trope of the picturesque native and local color, which were important mechanisms by which Europeans and Euro-Americans avoided recognizing the material realities faced by the majority of the world's people. Second, he appraised the words and actions of the burden carriers, the colonial officials and businessmen who, labeled after Rudyard Kipling's conjuring of the white man's burden, kept the British Empire functioning, and the globe-trotting sahibs, mem sahibs, twans, and other upper stratum and middling whites who produced and reproduced the imperial view of the colonial world. Third, he diagnosed the cause of the abundant misery he observed as colonialism, the profit system, and the impending spread of Nazism and fascism, and prescribed a cure, namely, a system that places human needs above all. Take, for instance, the first leg of his trip, a two-week ramble through Spain. On one level, the journey commenced auspiciously. The Mediterranean warmth evaporated the neurasthenic atmosphere of London that had cloaked Belfridge. Shipping luggage down the line, he and a companion for, from London who accompanied Belfridge part of the way carried in their rucksacks only a few essentials, pajamas, underwear, a toothbrush, hiking through the countryside and stopping overnight at small hotels. Ruddy-cheeked and sunburned, they called out Buenos Dias to peasants either eking something out of the soil 
or trudging home from the fields. They might have pretended, as Belfridge surmised countless traveling Europeans did, that they had been dropped into a picturesque scene. Drinking in off-the-beaten-path village bars, with villagers toasting them and the revolution, but with the proprietor addressing them formally and perhaps obsequiously as commander, Belfridge and his companion might have imagined that they were communing with the masses. But they were not. The sunburned peasants, whose toil was never-ending, could not understand why someone would willingly hike the byways. Their barely rudimentary Spanish prevented meaningful conversation. But as they were observing the local scenery, they could tell that the peasants viewed them as curiosities. The next morning, the picturesque dissolved into a real misery on an intervillage bus ride, as peasants, sickened by malnutrition, backbreaking labor, and copious and regular rounds of alcohol, spewed vomit on the jitney floor as it bumped along the potholed highway. There was no way that Belfridge could romanticize the poverty of the Spanish peasantry, or call it anything but feudal exploitation. Likewise, Valencia's children may have appeared playful at a distance, throwing fallen oranges at one another as snowballs, until Belfridge learned that the crisis of overproduction caused large orchard owners to let their crop rot on the trees or dump them in the harbor, but refused to allow their workers to gather it for their own sustenance. And on it went, through the Middle East, the ship passage to India, and into Britain's various Pacific colonies. Belfridge peeled back the picturesqueness that hid from view actual social relations and convinced the sahibs not only of their own superiority, but also the contentment of the submerged majority. They observed, beneath the bustle and feverish construction of 1930s Tel Aviv, he saw the speculative mania he experienced nearly a decade earlier in boomtown Hollywood, which boosted itself by projecting dreams of stardom and abundance. He also saw that part of its foundation was a Zionist fantasy of racial exclusion that had dire effects on the Arab population. Contrawise, he also sensed a rising reactionary Arab nationalism. The friction was of recent origin, he said, and had not yet substantially affected relationships between European Jewish and Arab workers who seemed to get along in the burgeoning cities. But it was also present in the competition among Christian, Muslim, and Jewish peddlers of religious tours and trinkets. Perhaps to his fellow European and American travelers, the bus trip across the desert from Damascus to Baghdad resembled a nomadic caravan a la Hollywood. But by arrival time, Belfridge became fully, quote, conscious of the white skin inside which I had been born the mystical tegument by virtue of which I was, in a broad way anyway, a sahib, end quote. The exotic veneer of camels and belly dancers could not hide the fact that the bazaar in Baghdad was flooded with cheap, mass-produced merchandise from Japan, or that the narrow alleys were authentically dirty and crowded with want. Belfridge was free to set aside this reality and escape to the movies, which had recently arrived in Baghdad full force for the European colony's entertainment, or to be a guest in a European's only club. But in the main, he keenly observed and recorded both the intense exploitation of colonized people in India, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia, 
and the stewards and other shipboard workers, and the blithelessness with which Europeans look past the misery. Belfort sailed the globe until, in the words of the cartoon character Popeye the Sailor Man, that's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. Try as he might, he could not escape. He realized he did not want to escape the demands and pleasures of emotional commitments and longed to be reunited with Molly, who became his second wife. And much as he enjoyed the company of the many British burden carriers, vacationers, and expatriates he met along the way, he found their escapism intolerable as well. He wondered what it would take to get the British public to look the truth of the profit system in the face. Part of his answer was his realization that he was implicated in the widespread escapist mentality. He had, after all, built a career as a Hollywood reporter and peddler of celluloid fantasy, and a London newspaperman loudly reporting on relatively minor issues. By the end of his journey, he resolved to help wake up the public to the reality that, quote, there are only two sides of the fence to be on, if sitting on it makes you uncomfortable, end quote. He stopped perching on that fence in two senses. Rejecting empire, he dedicated himself to, quote, stand with the universal family of the exploited toilers, end quote and he relocated back to California. The American public was, he felt, less sclerotic. Americans had an intensity of feeling, not like the bottled-up, complacent gentleman class into which he was born and to which he had returned when he became the Express's film critic. Although America was rough and tumble and, quote, callousness was part of the air one breathed, end quote, it was a bracing place where, Quote, for all its defects, I had chosen to live and raise my children. End quote. Away from it all concludes with Belfridge and his future wife attending an election night rally in California for the viable but ultimately unsuccessful gubernatorial candidate, the socialist Upton Sinclair. Langston Hughes, through five years of domestic and foreign travel, had had his interests, quote, broadened from Harlem and the American Negro to include an interest in all the colored peoples of the world. In fact, in all the people of the world, as I related to them and they to me, end quote. He focused his attention on historically submerged people. He took his poetry to cities and towns, schools and churches in the American South, with the conceit that his poetry would both entertain the African-American masses and encourage them to demand change. His wry observations of the stultifying effects of Jim Crow, written in his typical disarming and straightforward manner, offered his readers a searing indictment of American apartheid. His journey to the Soviet Union, originally as part of a group of a few dozen black intellectuals who were to make a feature film about the African-American freedom struggle, is eye-opening for many reasons. Most commenters on his visit remark that Hughes's pleasant surprise at the absence of a color line in Moscow and the warm and gracious hospitality offered by the group of Communist Party officials and ordinary citizens alike. Also of some remark was the existence of what he termed a Negro colony in Moscow that enjoyed high status. 
included in his travel log are myriad incidents, such as Muscovite commuters giving him a seat on a crowded bus because he was an honored foreign black American, and having a dental procedure at no charge because this was a socialist country. These and other episodes communicate Hughes's views that there were better, humane ways to organize society than American Jim Crow. The pages about Moscow veritably crackle with enthusiasm for a new world being born. But it is his extended journey in Soviet Asia that deserves closer attention here. Whatever inconveniences Hughes encountered in Moscow, including shortages of housing for foreign visitors, an unfathomable bureaucracy that affected his daily affairs, they were unremarkable glitches compared to the churning societies in the former Tsarist colonies of Central Asia. Soviet power was a relatively new feature of life there, and the distinctions between the old and new were striking. In Turkmenistan, he reported communism was discussed only in official meetings, a political ideology that otherwise had little purchase. On a collective farm, the Communist Party had only a slender presence, and women were largely excluded from public, celebratory, and recreational spaces. Purchasing of brides was still a common occurrence. Living conditions were rudimentary. Villagers shared the same bowl and cup for their meals. In Permityab, Hughes wrote, there were more yurts than houses. The houses had dirt floors, and people walked about with no footwear. Roads between settlements were practically non-existent, to say nothing of being paved. Even in somewhat larger towns and cities, a hotel was apt to look like, quote, a fourth-rate flop house in a slum, end quote, and be overcrowded, requiring Hughes to share a bed with a stranger. In Moscow, the communists' attempts to solidify their power and root out corruption frequently had a veneer of due process, but not so in Central Asia. Former outlaws who, sensing communist victory, had switched sides, were arrested and convicted for nepotism and crimes against the state with few of the niceties and legal protections available elsewhere. Soviet justice was as swift as the living conditions were primitive. Though he noted all of this, Hughes was not so troubled. Of more significance to him were the other instances he chronicled. A conversation with a Russian woman doctor nurse sent to the region to improve child and maternal health. A film crew staffed by colored people, which he contrasted with Hollywood's exclusion of African Americans. Relaxing in a town square from which the former czarist rulers had forbidden colored people to enter. The Uzbek orphan, neglected by czarist occupiers but cared for by Soviet authorities, enrolled in school, and now a responsible administrator of youth sports programs. Another young Uzbek, who recognized a kinship with Hughes based on their brown skin colors, who was enrolling in a newly formed medical school in Samarkand. Yurts, dirt floors, communal eating utensils, and the efficient dispatching of political enemies did not, in his estimation, delimit what was occurring in this part of the colored world. 
opportunities becoming available to racial and ethnic minorities under the Soviet experiment were unimaginable to African Americans living in the United States. Hughes observed the changes upending the world from what he termed the Negro point of view. He considered sympathetically whatever false starts formerly dominated people committed in their emancipatory efforts. He entertained little patience for fellow writers. He named Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, Wallace Thurman, Arthur Kessler, whom he liked a good deal, but who in his mind easily became disenchanted with hugely transformational events in the colored world because of attendant shortcomings and mistakes. Hughes and Belfridge both returned to America. One's home was here, the other came to start a new life. Both believed that the United States, despite its congenital defects, still promised its proclaimed revolutionary ideals. With the menace of fascism hanging over the world in the 1930s, perhaps they felt it better to be in a place that was open to change, or at least where they could effectively agitate for change. Cedric Belfridge employed the metaphor of the untenability of fence straddling as a way of life. He dug a foundation for life in the United States and became involved in meaningful leftist and anti-fascist activities there. At the end of I Wonder as I Wander, Langston Hughes offered his own metaphor to explain the world's precarity. Quote, In the last few years, I have been all around the embattled world, and I have seen people walking tight ropes everywhere. The tightrope of color in Alabama, the tightrope of transition in the Soviet Union, the tightrope of repression in Japan, the tightrope of fear of war in France, and of war itself in China and Spain, and myself everywhere on my tightrope of words. Anybody is liable to fall off a tightrope in any land, I thought, and God help you if you fall the wrong way. End quote. And yet both remained optimistic. Belfridge, as one might infer from his support for Upton Sinclair's candidacy, continued to find ways to promote a non-dogmatic attitude toward revolutionary change. Langston Hughes surveyed the multiple threats Mussolini and Hitler posed to the world civilization. Would civilization be destroyed? Would the world really end? Langston Hughes wondered. Not my world, he concluded. My world will not end. There was, after World War II and the defeat of fascism, a swift and official reaction to Hughes's and Belfridge's political activities of the previous decades. Hughes was tarred for his political poetry of the 1930s, regularly attacked by the reactionary and bigoted, nationally syndicated newspaper columnist Walter Winchell. Hughes's political associations with the efforts to elect Henry Wallace for president in 1948 on the Progressive Party ticket and to promote an end to the Cold War were labeled suspect, even traitorous. He earned a large part of his income from speaking fees at historically black colleges and universities. Both open and clandestine pressure was often successfully put on these institutions not to invite him. In 1949, he wrote an article for Ebony magazine about the African-American he most admired, and he chose to write about W.E.B. Du Bois. 
when after normal delays the article was finally scheduled for publication in 1953. Hughes looked over what he had written and requested it be withdrawn and he be allowed to write about another public figure. Hughes knew that being associated with Du Bois, by then a leading figure on the American left and himself a target of the Red Scare, would only deepen his problems. That same year, he was called before the McCarthy Committee, where he managed to repudiate his past views, but avoided denouncing the people with whom he worked so closely. But his appearance before the committee led him to withdraw from a politically engaged life, and he was essentially sidelined from the work to which he had devoted two decades of his time. Cedric Belfridge similarly suffered from the Cold War scare resettling in Los Angeles after the globetrotting that inspired away from it all. He got to work on a novelistic expose of the fantasy that was Hollywood titled The Promised Land. He jumped into the anti-fascist work that was joined by many of the film industry's screenwriters and actors. He wrote a biography of Claude Williams, a Presbyterian minister and organizer of sharecroppers in his home state of Arkansas. When the U.S. entered World War II, he worked in service to the British war effort and as an employee of MI5 posted in New York. His writing helped generate support for the war. At war's end, he was sent along with Jim Aronson, who was to become Belfridge's closest friend and collaborator, to occupy Germany to help establish a denazified free and democratic press. Returning to the United States, he and Aronson founded in 1948 a weekly, progressive, pro-peace, and anti-colonial, pro-labor, pro-civil rights newspaper, The National Guardian. In 1950, the federal immigration authorities opened an investigation into Belfridge, who had had permanent residence status since 1937. In May of 1953, he was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee, but declined to answer questions. A week later, he was called before Joe McCarthy's Senate committee, and the following day, an immigration authority arrested him on a deportation warrant. For the next two years, Belfridge was in and out of detention as he fought deportation, but in August of 1955, he was placed on an ocean liner bound for Britain. It was two decades before he was allowed into the United States, and only then for a very brief period. But unlike Hughes, Belfridge was not silenced, as he continued to write and report on the world's affairs well into the 1980s. Read together, I wonder as I wander, and away from it all, won by an American by birth, yet forced by race into second class, the other by an author on his way to becoming an American, but ultimately denied and sent away present useful insights into the developing anti-imperial and anti-fascist front and their meanings in the United States. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Kenneth will be back here next time for some probing Q&A and all-around fine history discussion with Carrie Ann Yokota and I. We'll catch you then.